Brilliant. Welcome to Cultivating Community. I had to look to check then, didn't I? Cultivating Community. Um, now, uh, firstly, do remember another fantastic film. If you do uh, want to cast a vote, it's all available on the CMC website. I thought that was an excellent one, but obviously there has been lots of excellent ones. Tough to make a decision. It's like Eurovision, isn't it? Tough to pick. <laughs> Tough to pick. Um, but yes, welcome, everybody. Um, I'm Josh, and I'm the moderator for this session. Um, I'm also wearing a zebra shirt because I am... Uh, the CEO of Knight Zookeeper, uh, which is a company that focuses on childhood creativity and encouraging and engaging children in the creative arts and writing. Um, and I have a, a book series, and this year I've released a show um, that's only possible because I have cultivated a community, um, to, to be precise, a community of school children across the UK. And I'm just going to be a little greedy and show you a little video about that project and what we've been working on. Thank you very much. Um, so yeah, so as you can see, that was that was co-created with the community, and we've got some fantastic panelists here to talk about their expertise and how they've grown their communities for their respective companies. Firstly, I want to congratulate you on being here and coming to this particular session. Um, I think, as as we all know, um, the world is changing, and we have such amazing tools to have direct relationships with our fans of our IP. And if you're someone here who's got an idea for a, a story, has got a world that they've been creating, then you know, hopefully there's going to be lots of ideas today to inspire you to get it out there and start engaging with um, directly with kids um, and getting them involved in the process. So I think it's a really important session and there's going to be lots of excellent insights into how, um, how you can do that. Um, so I've just introduced our panellists. Uh, we have Dan uh, Belinka uh, here, who is a BAFTA winner, uh, writer, director and producer. We have Naomi Dare from Coolabai, who's the head of digital there. We have Alison Norrington, who is the CEO and COO of Storytelling Central, Story Central, sorry, and Dan Thorne, who is from Guinness World Records, and we have Lucy Appleby from the Roldal Story Company. So we're going to be hearing from them one after the other, and going to take us through five-minute presentations. I'm going to sneak a question in, and then we'll open it up to the floor so that we can we can dive in even further. But uh, but after you, Dan. 
Thank you very much. Okay, so I'm Dan Belenka, and I'm the uh, head writer and director of Dixie, which was a, uh, a mystery format made by Kindle Entertainment for CBBC. Uh, and it was a mystery set in the world of uh, social media uh, that went out on their website and also on uh, mobile platforms and eventually was re-edited to become a TV program. Um, and we told the story through this uh, fictional social network we created, which was Dixie. So you had friend profiles, you had videos, and mostly it was through um, a kind of timeline uh, experience. Um, and uh, we did four series of that and two specials, and we always uh, described it as interactive, uh, which it was, but not in the way people think, not in a sort of bandersnatch, choose-your-own-adventure way. Our interactivity was um, the simplest, most basic thing that you have on any social platform, which was uh, comments. So the way it worked was um, we, we had this sort of like online script which uh, created uh, all of the online content to create the timeline. We put the stuff in that, and then um, the, our audience, they would leave comments underneath it. Um, and it's very important for kids uh, from a safeguarding point of view that those comments are moderated. So that's what CBBC did. So all the, all the moderated comments went in this kind of like big bucket of comments. Um, and what uh, me and the team did was we went through them, we read all of them, and, and by the end we had like 16,000. Uh, we would pluck out sort of the ones that were um, best from a story point of view, and then we would put them into the timeline. So there uh, you see Lilac Sparkly Condor, anything that's in blue, that's a, that's a user responding to a video they've seen, and the story at that point was about about an anti-bullying campaign, uh, and they were very sort of irate about something that happened, and then um, we would write responses from the fictional characters. So you've got real people talking to um, fictional characters. And what uh, I thought was just sort of great about this project was the way kids instinctively understood that they needed to kind of role play it. This wasn't like leaving uh, comments, uh, like fan comments, talking about the show. They spoke to the characters as if they were their friends, as if they were real. And they, they continued to surprise us. So one of our characters um, was, uh, series three took place in a kind of arts academy. So we had a character who was a street poet. Um, and the kids started writing poems back to us, which we thought was, well, that's brilliant. We never asked them to do that. So we all think, this is brilliant. We're getting kids uh, writing poems without having actually, you know, tried to incentivize that in any way. Um, and th their responses were just continually surprising. So as I say, in terms of um, threading their replies, uh, they figured out their own way to reply to each other using the way the comments were numbered on the CBBC website, again. Um, or uh, they learned to game the system. Um, uh, it was like timed release, so um, the thing would be, uh, you know, when, when the clock would tick over, that's when the next bit of content would be released. Kids figured out that if they set the clock on their computer 24 hours in advance, they could see the next day's content. So we had to, yeah, we had to fix that. Um, we, uh, we couldn't say uh, things like, oh my God, we couldn't even say OMG, so um, we, uh, our characters used to say OMD um, for oh my days, right? Um, but then I would see in the comments, kids would say, what does OMD mean? And other kids would reply, oh, it means oh my Dixie. Um, so they took it and they, and they owned it. And in series three, we did um, a same-sex romance um, and it was very interesting. There was, like no, there was no sort of hand-holding from us. We just had two girls who liked each other uh, who went on a date. And we could see, again, in the comments, um, some of the younger viewers were at first confused because they hadn't really seen that before. So they were asking questions like, oh, I thought, I thought Addie was a, a girl. Is Addie a boy? And then other kids would go, no, Addie's a girl. Eve's a girl. Girls can like each other and date each other. And again, we thought this is great because they're, they're sort of self-moderating, having the discussion themselves, no kind of like adult coming in to, you know, to, to give that message. It was wonderful to see them uh, doing that themselves. Um, the other thing that was nice about this format is how topical and reactive we could be. So 
obviously the series itself, the episodes we would have already made, but while it was going out, it was almost like a sort of live experience. So when we did series one at the time, if you remember, if you cast your mind back to 2014, the Doge meme was very popular. Um, and uh, we had a story point involving a, a lost dog. So we made a Doge meme just right at the end, like, uh, I mean, literally the day before the thing ended. Uh, for series two, um, while it was going out, uh, if you remember the dress, the dress was very popular. Those are two of our writers who happened to be identical twins and series two, had a sort of horror theme, so we were doing this little shining bit. Anyway, we quickly mocked up um, a dress meme. So again, it was much more topical than you could be in uh, traditional television. Um, and the other thing I wanted to talk about very quickly was um, creating almost like a, a sort of a quasi-live event out of it. So one of the last things we did was Dixie Escape. We put a bunch of our characters in an escape the room game and they get locked in and they're not able to, to get out. So they would, on their phones, uh, the conceit is always that they're filming it on their phones. So they would post these, um, these little videos asking for, for help and um, then on the website, uh, which was brilliantly done by the CBBC in-house team, you could click around, you could click around the room, um, so it would ask you, you know, what do you want to look at, and you could look at all the things and basically solve the, solve the clue, leave a comment, um, that's just me self-promoting there, leave a comment, um, and then, as I say, we'd already shot the episodes, but we would write replies, go, oh, thanks very much, you've helped us solve it, and then the next video would play, which they go, brilliant, thanks to you, we've solved the clue. So, um, so yeah, so that was it, really, is the, um, the ability to talk to the audience and have the audience talk to you and react as if, uh, as if all the characters are real. That was uh, what was really fun about it, and, as I say, taking something that then happens um, kind of like with a ticking clock in real time, day by day, to have a format where you basically, I mean, they loved us at CBBC at the time because you've got something because they're literally just sitting there hitting refresh all day, staying on the website or on the app, waiting for the next uh, bit of content. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So we're going to go straight into okay. Naomi. Uh, I'm Naomi Dare. I am head of digital at Kulabai Group. Um, just a bit of background if you don't know Kulabai, we're a children's IP company. We have a variety of brands like Giraffes Can't Dance, Poppy Cat, Clangers, Beast Quest and Scream Street, um, TV show or book-based brands generally, and we create, develop and manage those brands. Um, today I'm going to talk to you specifically about our cat. Well, we've got a few cat brands actually, but specifically about Warrior Cats. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's actually slightly more popular in the US, so it's a children's book series, st reading age starting about age nine. Um, and it launched about 15 years ago, and to date we've sold over 40 million books in the series. There's been over 80 books published in 38 languages. Um, just to let you know that the author is Erin Hunter. Erin Hunter is actually a group of authors that write under that kind of pseudonym, and they work within the Kulabai group. So we, we have a sister company called Working Partners that write books. They're a publishing packager. They write stories. They write books. And then the whole group holds on to all the rights outside of the publishing world. So the books have been around for some time. And a few years back, we started looking at the... Um, the presence of the fans and what we could do as an IP company beyond just the books, because we started, you know, we obviously saw the sales figures of the mm. books, and we were like, there's, there's a lot of fans out there. What are they doing? And we did some research, um, and it, initially it was just kind of, all oh, the fonts have gone a bit funny, mm -hmm. and all that. Um, initially it was just desk research to see what was going on, and we found immediately that there was hundreds of UGC channels where people were creating their own animation based on the series, creating their own visuals of how they thought the cats would look and what they did, reenacting scenes. Um, death scenes or relationship scenes or love scenes from the cats' books that are all quite suitable because they're just cats. Um, 
but we've, we've just found so many UGC videos. We're like, this, this is nuts. There's like more than 400 million views of fan animation. It was always quite basic, but still, they put a lot of time and effort in. So we're like, these are really engaged, passionate fans. Uh, we also found a lot of fan art. Um, DeviantArt is, is kind of quite a popular place to place art if you're an artist, and we found over a quarter of a million um, pieces of Warrior Cats fan art. And you can see the numbers here. So WCRPG is Warrior Cats Roleplay Game, and that's a completely fan-made site that's all about role-playing as the characters. But like you were saying, you know, they, the people come on and they want to be a character, they want to be involved in the story, and that's huge. I mean, there's literally posts upon posts all the time. So we could see that there was a hugely passionate fan base. And we decided that we needed to work out, well, who are these fans? Do they read often? Do they read recently? Or are they all older fans that have kind of moved on? Um, so we did a piece of research with Kids Industries. And we put it up on the, the publisher's website for the books and with a few of the YouTubers that we'd found. And we just thought, maybe we'll get a few hundred replies just to kind of see a more in-depth look at the fans. And we got 30,000 respondents, which we were absolutely gobsmacked. And it took a lot longer to process the data that we expected. But there was a, they were from 147 different countries. So we knew it wasn't just the US as well. Um, so the question was really, as an IP owner, what do we do? How do we... How do we embrace this? How do we unite the fans? How can we engage them? Um, can we tap into their the demand, well not demands, but they were just desperate for merchandise and product to show off their fandom and the, their love of the series. And also, we just wanted to be able to communicate with them. You know, how can we tell them about new news? How can we have that direct-to-consumer relationship? Um, and also, bearing in mind, a lot of these are under-13s, so we knew that we couldn't rely. So we do have social channels, but we couldn't just rely on the social channels. So, sorry, this is probably... I'll speed up. Um, so we worked with our agency and we, we decided to, as a first step to create a Warriors Hub. I'll just show you a very quick trailer. So we launched the website um, earlier this year in January. Um, we, we launched it with the help of some of the key superfans because we knew we wanted to kind of listen to what they wanted from a hub. How could we celebrate all the fan art? Um, feel free to go and have a look. It's Um But we, we launched and we saw so much fan reaction in the social space and people were writing YouTube reviews about the website. They, were, they really seemed to be so pleased that there was an official destination for them. Um, I won't... Oh. I won't go into that in too much detail, but like lots of digital platforms, it's all about experimenting, putting something out there, seeing how it gets responded to. Can we provide a reason to get the fans engaging? Look at how that does and then put that back into the process. It's a continual process. We have an editor full-time who runs the site, and we're constantly working with super fans to kind of generate more ideas and how can we keep people engaged. Just a few examples of the content that we have up on the site. We can get exclusive articles from the authors because they're in our office some of the time, which is great because we can kind of let people feel like they're much closer to the authors. We can release news. We can um, feature and highlight the amazing fan art that's literally generated in the thousands every day. Um, we do quizzes, we do polls, and we have special worries reactions. So rather than leaving free comments, which is tricky to moderate when it's in its thousands, we can you know, let people just have a reaction. 
One of the most exciting pieces of content in the last couple of weeks was we let the fans decide what piece of plush they would first like to see. So there'd be no product in terms of toy or plush to date. Which character would they like to see? And we were amazed that 80,000 people, that's unique users, came in to vote about which characters they wanted, which is fantastic, because now when we work with the, the company producing that product, we hope that we, uh, yeah. we will get good sales on that. And this is just a, a quote from one of the fans that kind of summed up quite nicely what we were intending to do. Um, so there. Brilliant. Again. Thank you so much. That was <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, so I come to the idea of cultivating community from... Oops. That was my mic. From more of a strategy, thank you, and world-building perspective and as a storyteller and a writer. So sometimes I'm brought in at the beautiful phase where something's being concepted. Other times it's way more difficult because it's once something is already live. So I'm going to look at it more from a design thinking perspective and a world-building perspective. I need to lean forward because I can't actually see the thing, sorry. Okay, so the first thing I would say is about this tone of voice, interaction and dialogue, right? And there was a study done for Intel a few years ago in LA that looked at this, the evolution of conversation between storyteller and audience. And you can replace the word storyteller and audience with brand and consumer. And it became very clear that there is this evolution. Like back in the day when I was writing my books, I didn't really know who my audience were. I'd like stake out bookshops with my mum and we'd be really excited when someone was picking up the book and then they'd put it back again. We're like, damn. But I didn't really know who my audience were. That's completely changed. So this study for Intel defined four levels of conversation between storytellers and audiences. The first one, sorry to say, they defined as the broadcast model. And they said we've had 150 years of push storytelling where people had very limited choices. They would just flick through TV channels to find what they might like best out of a few options. And they say that the broadcast model is basically putting your fingers in your ears as a broadcaster and storytelling teller because you don't allow for any conversation or dialogue with your audience. That was the very first level. Second level is one of my favourites. Nothing to do with Justin Bieber, let me tell you. <laughs> the second level they called the I'm listening model. And this is what John Chu, the director of the Legion of Extraordinary Dancers and of the movie Believe, adopted for this kind of idea. So they would put images out of the shoot of the Bieber movie on Twitter. At the time, it was predominantly where their audience were. They very clearly knew it was mostly teenage girls. And they'd put a series of images out with really ridiculous questions like, should Bieber wear the black hat or the white hat in the next scene? They absolutely weren't waiting to see what they said. It was already in the can and done. But it allowed the fans to reply simply hashtag black, hashtag white, hashtag whatever they may have said. It didn't matter. Um, what happened then when the movie came out, there was hot spots of people in the room. They were like, oh, my God, he picked the black hat. You know, they felt like they had been listened to. It absolutely is an illusion of interaction. It's not really listening. And it, you need to do that when you really know who your fan base are. I don't think it would work for, like, middle-aged guys because they would absolutely know that you're not listening back. But there's an illusion of making it feel like people have agency and they're being listened to. The third level is what Tim Kring did with Heroes, which they defined as welcome to my world. There was assets released online for heroes before the TV show went live. So fans could get to know the characters, understand some of the arcs between the characters and the relationships, get to know fashion brands, quotes that they might use. By season three of Heroes, the fan wiki became the resource for the writer's room. It was better documented than the story bible that they had been given. 
So that's, that's one of my favourites too, the I'm listening and the welcome to my world. This is take it, it's yours, I wouldn't go near this. This is what Eric Kripke did with Supernatural, where in season eight he asked fans to create canon for him to integrate into the show. Now, you can only get to season seven and know that the fans know your world enough that they will create canon that you could use. Um, he did use some of it. Apparently, 50% of the fans loved it and 50% hated it. And they thought he was a storyteller. Why was he asking people for help? So out of those four levels, my favourites absolutely are the illusion of listening and the idea of welcoming people into the world, not letting them change your story, but letting them add to fan wikis. Kind of a lot of what Warriors has done. And there's a lot of what I'm going to say that Warriors is actually a really great example of. The second thing I think is really important is the concept of a really good theme or a heartbeat or a message or a big idea. Often I feel that that's missing or sometimes the theme is quite light. I believe you need a theme that's going to res resonate with an audience on an emotional level regardless of age. Right? So a great example is Avatar. don't need to read all of that to you, but basically it looks like quite a political story as they're rushing into Pandora to rip it up. There's no coincidence why the big green eyes were used on all of the marketing promo for Avatar. It's because the heartbeat and the message of Avatar is about us seeing each other. And that works with Jack Sully, the main guy. It works with um, all of the main characters. Sigourney Weaver's character knows every about the Na'vi, but she's never really seen them. So the heartbeat of Avatar is our ability to see each other. I know it didn't come out so well in that first one, but I know they've just shot movies two, three, four, and five, and they're hoping that that will come out more strongly. But the theme is so important, and never to preach it out. The third one is to create an epic story world. Twilight. There's a barrier to entry with Twilight that's quite low. So to create this emotion and feeling that people are stepping in. So you learn very quickly that the vampires don't die in the sunlight in, in twilight. They just shimmer or glimmer or something, right? So there's low barriers to entry for the fans to know and understand that they feel part of the world, but it's not difficult for them to grab hold of. Harry Potter is a fantastic story world. We meet Harry under the stairs in Privet Drive. We go with him to Hogwarts. If we began Harry Potter in Hogwarts, we would just naturally assume that that's maybe what schools are like in this world. But the fact we go with him from Privet Drive, we are welcomed into the world. We see Hagrid's house, the Weasley's house, the Whomping Willow, the Black Lake, the Quidditch pitch. It's not just told in the confines of Hogwarts. There's a world for us to explore, numerous characters, numerous locations. So broad geographical boundaries, simple tips for building a great story world. The more room you have in your setting, the more you can tell. Kind of the example I gave of Harry Potter. So even if you're telling a story, I don't know, something like Friends could easily have been told just in one of the apartments. But we see them in the cafe and we see them in other locations. If you've got a story you are just telling in a flat or an apartment, just try to scale it out to the apartment block or the street or the town. So for example, Star Wars has this galaxy of places to tell stories, but Avatar just has Pandora. But a simple sketch like that, and it's not simple at all really, but a simple image like that has raised loads of questions with the fans. Is everything we've seen so far down there in the forestry? Some fans believe it's on one of these floating islands. So there's this weird thing, and then like if that's floating, what's the gravity, what's the science of Pandora? An image like that raises so many questions amongst superfans. Special source, nothing is 100% new. So how can you invent a new twist? For example, um, a vampire killer goes out to avenge the death of his mother. We've kind of heard it. But Abraham Lincoln, vampire hunter, we weren't expecting that, right? So how can you take something that seems old and just give it a twist? 
unfamiliarity. The more unfamiliar your setting, the more curious your audience will be and they'll want to join in and find out more. Cowboys and Aliens was a movie that we could never have made up, right? So these ideas of something that's slightly unfamiliar, the idea of warriors and this kind of game of throne with cats, it's something that is familiar but there's a slight unfamiliarity to that world. A set in history, it's said that Pirates of the Caribbean is written on a three or four hundred year timeline and we're not presented it in a boring way. There's setups and payoffs in each of those movies that reference back and forward. Social groups. Divide your character behaviours into different groups and give them social ladders. So there's always something at stake for your characters with a social ladder. The ones at the top know there's people further down the ladder waiting to get up to them, and then in reverse. So um, look at your audience as tribes. I look at this idea of exclusive inclusivity kind of sounds weird and a little bit like a contradiction, but it's what happens if you're a fan of a football team, if you follow a certain religion or a certain faith. When you're with your people and the team you support, you're absolutely included. When you're not with your team and your people, you're maybe more a little bit exclusive. And if you can create that feeling of making people think they're in something together as a community, but also a little bit exclusive, maybe when they're at work or in their family, you've got something that starts to build community. Harry Potter was so smart. The four houses was exactly the people group of the audience. So the kids at the school were the kids reading and watching the books and the movies. And those four houses, which was cleverly chosen by the sorting hat, was a way for the kids and the fans to go, yeah, I would be in this one, I would be in that one. So it wasn't just the kids together, they're divided into clans or factions. Hunger Games did exactly the same thing with the 15 districts. And the uh, social media and digital plan around that, you couldn't choose which district you were in. You were assigned to a district, which then puts you in a digital community with people who have the same goal at stake. Game of Thrones with the Seven Kingdoms. It's a really smart way to take the idea of your story world and your characters and divide them into groups that allow your fans and your audience to find their place in the group. My favourite quote from Walt Disney... You're dead if you aim only for kids. Adults are only kids grown up anyway. And this is for me the ultimate. Do what you do so well that they want to see it again and bring their friends. And that's what a great community does. It kind of starts to do some of the work for you. So that's my five minutes. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, my name's Dan Thorne. Uh, I've looked after social media at Guinness World Records for the last uh, five and a half years. So um, my first memory of the Guinness World Records uh, book was sitting on my granddad's sofa with my brother, uh, flicking through the 1989 edition, which you can see here. And my brother memorised all the vital stats of the tallest man ever, Robert Wadlow. And then he used to bring them up in conversations um, and, and you know, tell everyone all about the things that he'd learned, which is something that we hear parents say about their kids uh, doing often when they read the book now. Um, <clears throat> they love to share the facts that they've picked up. And what I really loved about reading the book at that age was sifting through and discovering the amazing pictures and then reading all about the stories behind them. And uh, of course, nowadays, uh, those stories are told online as well as um, in print, which has been great for us because of the abundance of amazing video content that we receive uh, most of which comes from user-generated evidence footage from record attempts, uh, but we also shoot our own profiles and receive clips from our TV shows around the world. And the first digital platforms that we launched on were YouTube and Facebook in 2006 and 2007, and that was really interesting because it brought us a brand new audience of millennials 
around about 75% male. Um, which what's been really interesting, um, more so in recent years, is the advent of platforms like Snapchat, PopJam, and TikTok that are perfect for engaging online with our core audience of, uh, of book consumers, the 7 to 11-year-olds. Um, and it's important that we maintain a year-round connection with our audiences rather than just kicking into gear when it comes to the key selling period for the book around Christmas. So uh, the level in of engagement that we get on, on these platforms like uh, TikTok and PopJam often outperforms Facebook and YouTube. And I think part of the reason for this is because our younger audiences aren't cynical. They're genuinely excited about the world um, around them, and they have that sense of wonder still when they discover new record-breaking facts. And it tends to be the records with the wow factor that perform really well, where they can find something that they've never seen before. And if, the, if that achievement is kind of relatable, that's even better. But right here you can see uh, Sultan Kozen and um, Chandra Dengi, the shortest and tallest men in the world who were filmed a few years ago. Chap in the middle is our editor-in-chief, Craig Glenday. Um, so uh, an example of uh, the, the, the kind of the wow factor records would be, um, this is a short film of Tazio Gavioli from Italy uh, doing pinky pull-ups. And uh, this one performed really well on our uh, kids' platforms. <laughs> as they can understand how difficult it would be to pull up your own body weight using just your little fingers. And Tazio had an interesting backstory as well because he was inspired by his cat's determination um, after she lost a paw in an accident. So he, he, a lot of our record holders do have these really fascinating stories that we can tell online. Um, and it really helps to build the story and, and get our communities involved. Um, and it's, it's quite difficult for them to get their head around um, a record like The Fastest Time to Circumnavigate the World by Bicycle, although the achievement is incredibly impressive, it doesn't have the same immediacy and impact, as, um, uh, which is kind of what's required nowadays with a crowded competitive news feed. Like for example, when you're flicking through Facebook, you know, something that communicates immediately is a man doing pull-ups with his fingers. So, um, and although the majority of record holders are adults, we do our best to reflect our younger audiences uh, with content that we post. We want to feel like record-breaking is something that they, they could do themselves in the future. It's something that's achievable if you've got the right level of dedication, as um, Roy Castle used to say on Record Breakers back in the 80s. And record attempts with Rubik's Cubes are one area in which our younger audiences really excel. Um, as you can see from the pictures here, there's more than one way to break a, uh, break a record with a Rubik's Cube. And uh, here's a quick clip of the amazing Kei Juan Yu uh, from China, who's attempting his record on the Chinese TV show I Dream. Uh, this is, uh, he's actually solving Rubik's Cubes as he juggles them, um, which is just mind-blowing. <laughs> and the video that we, po we posted this on our Facebook page, and it's since been viewed 160 million times. Um, so when it comes to curating content, uh, we take a lot of our, our cues from our audience and they know what they like, so we try to respond by serving them more of what they want. And occasionally we throw in a few surprises here and there and see how they perform. So endurance records like Tazio's Pinky Pull-Ups always go down well. Human body records um, uh, are another, uh, another subject, that, uh, one of the most popular sections of the book. And of course, we can all remember reading the book at, uh, when we were younger and skipping straight to the human body section um, to look at the man with the longest fingernails or the lady with the longest fingernails. Um, but as well as having sensational pictures, we're able to tell more about the stories uh, behind these records um, because um, 
we can we can use, we can interview uh, our record holders. We can use little sound bites. Um, for example, even on something like TikTok, we can take a really interesting little sound bite from one of our record holders talking about their life. Um, and uh, these stories often tell kids that it's okay to be different. Uh, we inducted Harnam Carr into the GWR family a couple of years ago. I'd like to leave you with a very short clip of her. I never thought that the public would react to me as a bearded lady this way that they have, and it's been amazing and it's been very positive. So I think being able to reach out to different people and help different people embrace themselves or work with different companies and just feeling the love, I think that's what's been probably one of the main highlights from Embracing My Beard. It's very important for me to hold this record to show younger children that you know, when you grow up, there will be so many people out there that look different, but it's okay to love and accept them too, and, you know, to love and accept yourself as well. Thank you. Hi. Um, oh, gosh, that's really loud. Um, my name is Lucy Appleby, and I'm the marketing manager at the Royal Doll Story Company. Um, before I dig into all things cultivating community, I thought I would just give you a little bit of an update of where we are in 2019. Uh, we've now sold over 300 million books worldwide. Um, Roald Dahl remains the most well-known children's author in the UK, uh, with his stories now being translated into over 60 different languages worldwide. And one book is now sold every two and a half seconds. Um, and as we, as the Roald Dahl Story Company, as an organisation, move into 2019 and beyond, we're at a really exciting point in that we're looking for lots of different um, new, innovative, exciting ways to continue to tell the stories, um, worlds, characters, everything that Royal created to new audiences. And one of the ways that we do this, and one of the really key parts of our brand strategy, is of course social media. Uh, it's for us our most regular and most immediate interaction with our fans, um, and it plays, like I said, a huge part in our brand strategy. Now, one of the uh, key parts of my role as marketing manager is to oversee the digital strategy at Royal Doll. And I have the challenge, which as challenges go is utterly delightful, but very, very challenging, of trying to create a set of social channels that justify um, what the stories and worlds from Royal Doll and that also can delight his many fans of adults and children alike. Um, so... I'm not going to be able to answer exactly how we do that today, but um, I'm going to talk through a couple of the key beats of how we do that. Um, so for us, what we always try and make sure and make the, sure that it's the heart of our channels is our IP. It's our USP. It's the reason why fans engage with us and it's the reason why we remain so popular today. Um, so we have the opportunity when we start to plan our content to really think about this in an interesting way. We absolutely could um, take lots of quotes that could potentially be read out of context, feel a little saccharine. We could flood our channels with expected illustrations and over-index on film stills. But we don't think that's the best way for us to continue to engage new audiences um, long-term. So instead, we take the IP and we look at how we can stretch it and pull it in ways that feel relevant to the modern day and again, really demonstrate our cultural relevancy as a brand. Uh, two of the examples on the screen behind me are ways we've done this. Um, and it really works for us, this approach. So these not only are two of the best performing posts of our social feeds in 2018, 
I'm now having a little bit of a panic that I've got a typo in one of them. So if I have, if everyone can politely ignore it, that would be great. Um, but they also were in the top 0.5% of all content shared on Facebook in 2018, according to the BuzzSumo uh, statistics that were brought out last year. So we're really delighted with them. Another sort of key part of our promotional and social strategy is making sure that we're using our audience effectively. I think I can, as a little lesson as well, going on behind me. Um, so our audience, just like everyone else that um, on the panel, is fortunate enough that we have an audience that is super engaged and we're able to activate them at key moments, whether that's to enter competitions, share with us their favorite moments around Dahl, or to purchase, be that book, product, or entertainment tickets. However, we're really, really protective about the amount of sales content which goes on our channels. Uh, we respect our audience, and whilst we know that they're eager to buy things from us, we don't want our channels to become a place that's just a heavy sales push, linking back to this idea that broadcasting isn't doing anyone any favors um, if you don't talk to people and engage. Um, we're so protective, in fact, that not only do we have a limited number of spots for sales posts on our channels, um, but we also ask any brands who want to feature, we're an IP brand, as many people sat in the audience are, so I'm sure you can all relate. We've got a lot of partners and licensees and so on who want to get their chance to feature on the Roald Dahl social channels and reach that really engaged audience. Um, for a brand or partner to feature on the channels, they have to agree to let us produce the content. So we work with them, we look at their objectives, the audience they want to meet, and the product in whatever form it is that they want to sell. But ultimately, we know that we understand our audience better than them. <laughs> we understand our IP. And by working together, we can create something that is not only as just as engaging as all the other content you would expect to see on our channels, but that will really encourage people to click and purchase whilst also not feeling like they're being kind of oversaturated with sales messaging. And this, again, this has been really effective for us because our click-through rate is well above the industry average, which is always a delight to be able to say. But it also has turned out in recent years that uh, brands and partners who do push through our channels, especially those who promote it with their paid budget, find they've got a better, uh, it's a better media buy if you work with us than if you put it through your own channels. Um, so the other thing, and I'm aware the red light is flashing, so I'm going to be very quick now, um, that we use our channels for is, as I touched on at the beginning of this session, we're in a really exciting period of development transition as an organization. Uh, some of you might have seen at the end of 2018, we announced a pretty exciting partnership with Netflix. And so a big part of the role of our channels and speaking to our community on a regular basis is to make sure that we're readying them for what's to come. And so we do that with lots of exciting content, which is my last slide that I'll leave you with. <laughs> it did have music, but I may have forgotten to pop that on. <laughs> um, but that's it for me. I'm aware I've spoke very quickly. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, everyone. Can I just quickly get a time check? Because I've vainly given my phone for photos. So um, how long have I roughly got? 20. 
Excellent. So I'm going to dig my questions in first. But if people can be thinking about questions, we, we should have some time. Um, so I want to come to you, Dan, first, if I can. You may. Um, so we heard a lot about the amazing Dixie project. Oh, I've done that. Uh, I shouldn't have Sorry. That. <laughs> Let's advertise Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, if you were to run the Dixie project again, it was an amazing, uh, amazing to hear about it in, in, in the detail that you went into. But you've, you know, you've ran four series of that. I know you've moved on and done sim well, more projects again, thinking about this idea of, of, of co-creating stories. It, would you change anything going back and looking at Dixie? Well, I'm very glad you asked me that. Um, uh, the thing is, Dixie happened in a kind of in a magical window um, uh, of where the tech, where there was just enough of technology, but we weren't quite there yet. Um, so it was this magic window um, before the streamers were quite as ubiquitous as they, as they are now. We launched Dixie One uh, the same year that um, I mean, iPlayer already existed, but iPlayer, as you all know it now, the, the, the you know the latest version launched the same year. Um, so. I, I, looking back, I think the idea of doing um, content like this on a on a website feels sort of strangely quaint now. Mm -hmm. You you wouldn't do that anymore. You would go straight to a, a streamer, which means you wouldn't be able to do the thing that we did, which was build this fake social network and have all of those comments because you don't really leave comments under you know a Netflix show. Um, so I think we were very lucky to be able to do it then. I don't think you could. I don't think you could make Dixie now um, in the way that we in the way that we did. Um, so if I was to do it again, or if I, it's it's not so much what I would change about the past because I, I think we well if I could do anything differently, I would I would have had a bigger budget. But apart from that, um, it's, it's fundamentally I think we I think we did what we what we set out to do. But if I was doing it now, I was thinking about this, um, and I think you'd have to partner up with either an existing sort of uh, social network, and then you run into the the huge moderation issue, um, or uh, I guess uh, again, if money was no object, I'd create a kind of like a bespoke app. Um, but again, if you're going to be um, interacting with kids and doing this kind of sort of role-played uh, drama, you've got to have a moderation strategy. Um, so that's always going to be the big challenge, and that's what was great with working with someone like BBC, uh, CBBC, is because they have that. Um, so I'd either do as a, um, a partnership or a bespoke app. And the other thing that I thought was very exciting and would sort of um, scratch the surface off is this kind of live event thing. So again, if I was doing that kind of thing again. Um, original Dixie, the episodes ran over, I think it was uh, three weeks, and that was great. It was very intense. Um, but I think with so much competition, um, I would very much hone in on this live event feel about trying to do something where you've got to be there. Because, uh, again, in the streaming world, what's brilliant is we time shift everything. So it's about trying to create an experience that happens within a very concentrated uh, space of time. Amazing. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Over to you, Naomi. Mm -hmm. So um, you've created the Warrior Cats website. Um, as you said, with a community of amazing fans uh, to do so. How did you, uh, websites are complicated beasts to UX and UI. How did, how did you balance what your community were telling you they wanted uh, versus introducing new people to the brand? Obviously, making an investment in a website needed to you know, get the ROI of new, in, new users mm -hmm. as well. So how did you balance those yeah, two? It is, and it is a balance. And I think with our when we look at our KPIs and what we want to achieve, we always say that we want to make it a sticky enough site that people are coming back regularly. You know, And we're actually going to be releasing an app version of all the content Great. too soon because we know that's where people want that opportunity to do it in their pocket too. But... Um, yeah, basically, it's, it's a fine balance. You know, the super fans, they, they know more than a lot of the writing team, even. You know, they, they will point out things sometimes that there's a 450 characters in the world. There's a huge family tree, and there were mistakes in it that the, 
the authors had created this family tree, but the mistakes yeah. that the fans pointed. <laughs> so the fans add huge value because they, they are so passionate. They literally absorb every detail. The wiki, I think, like you were saying for heroes, the writers go back to the wiki to check on things because mm. they know that the fans yeah. have, have pointed things out. But, yeah, for a new reader, it's quite um, alienating to go to a community where everyone knows everything about it. And you're like, well, haven't you read one book? I don't know about that character. Right. So one of the key reasons that we wanted to create this destination was not to replace where the communities are already. There's great places where they can talk in more adult environments for some of the older fans. We wanted to make sure this site was suitable for under-13s, suitable for new readers. So, but we, we have a combination of content. We have stuff for the super fans about the latest books, but we also have the, which plush would you like to see for the newer fans? Or, you know, 13 great, I don't know, heroes of, of the first series. So we try and, we always try and balance that out because it's, it's tricky, but it's yeah. important. Well, that's great. Thank you. Um, and Alison, so... It was very, it was fantastic, amazing presentation, really gave us a, a scope of the things to think about mm -hmm. if you're developing IPs to create these open-ended worlds. Um, I have a quote for you. So Henry Ford famously said, if I'd asked consumers what they wanted, they would have told me they want a faster horse. Mm. Um, and Steve Jobs agreed. He said that people don't know what they want until you show it to them. So is there a danger in this co-creating of worlds, do you think, that where we're co-creating with fans, that we risk losing overall quality and risk-taking? I think both of those quotes are true to a point. I think there's a, I had a couple of Disney quotes in there um, about, you know, do what you do so well, people want to see it again and bring their friends. I think ultimately it's a, a fundamental human condition that we want communities and we want to be together. I found it quite fun when um, all the social media platforms blew up in, you know, say between 2006 and 2009, and people formed communities like around the world with people that they'd never met before. And then I see now a resurgence of things like alternate reality games, escape rooms, secret cinema, where people want to be back together again. Mm -hmm. So I think it will never go away that people do want to be together, but necessarily, yes, they may have just wanted a faster horse. Mm. I think it's really difficult to try to trick the public or the audience to keep rolling out same things. I've worked on a series of different TV shows, books and films where, for example, one territory would have a really successful show. I'd be then invited to another country that had bought that format and they'd think by me coming, I can do magic pixie dust and make this new audience do what the other audience did in Sweden three years ago. Yeah. Never work like that because it's absolutely a bespoke prescription, if you like, of the moment in time, who the audience are, what you want them to do, why do you want them to do it, what happens when they do it. So, yes, I think to ask perhaps what people want they don't know mm -hmm. because it's not their job to think about that. But I think they always look towards entertainment for opportunities to be in a community. It's why people go on holiday, meet another family, and they're only there for a week, and they end up being friends with that family forever. That you is know, there's most something. Worst nightmares. <laughs> 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 be fair. Sorry. But it's the power. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. But it's the power of a shared experience. Yeah. So yeah. Thank you. Sorry, just went. <laughs> so Dan, um, you know, Guinness World Records, amazing content, as you said and, uh, and showed us as well. I thought it was, you know, it's riveting stuff. And you can see why in a world of scrolling through Facebook feeds and Twitter, it's going to make you stop. Um, how do you pick the platforms, the social media? You know, there's always, it's a fickle world. There's new platforms springing up. You mentioned TikTok in your, in your talk. How, how do you... Uh, review these new social media platforms and decide where's right for Guinness World Records? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, when you look at what Facebook's done in the last um, few years, is uh, there is a danger in putting all your eggs in one Facebook basket. So always be looking out there for any emerging platforms. And we're always really interested to see what younger people are, are, are working on. I think we missed the boat when it came to Snapchat to begin with because we didn't really see a way in. It was quite, it's always been quite a difficult place for brands as well, you know, to build a community if you're not an individual. We're working with Snapchat now on, on a couple of Discover shows. Um, and then a couple of years ago, they approached us because they wanted to do something for Guinness World Records Day. So we kind of had Snapchat team members going to our New York office and London and all over the place and that was a nice sort of icebreaker and then we were able to actually prove that that, that that people were really into the content that we were that we were providing so I think when we when we think about where we want to go next um, we always think of younger audiences we think of like well pop jam came along and uh, pop jam seemed like a real no-brainer for us um, and we started off with that one quite early we started experimenting with it um, you get a great uh, interaction from from kids on pop jam because they want to scribble on things and you give them little coloring challenges and things like that and it's a nice way of introducing them to this wonderful world of record breaking and all these um, unusual things that they would not see anywhere else so pop jam was was a, a really good one for us to begin with um, i think with TikTok, that kind of came along maybe about a year ago um, our um, team in beijing had already started to see signals that that was working really well for them and actually i think there's an affinity between us and TikTok because they both uh, uh, when it was musically, we couldn't see a way in, in, into that at all. The, you know, all the dancing and singing and miming. But the way that TikTok's moved now is kind of very much more, um, you know, a, a real su a surprise every time you flick up. You know, you're going to see something unusual. And actually, it's a really good space for us because it's a lot of it's about diversity and it's a lot about kind of celebrating diversity and unusual things and you know saying there's a big wide wonderful world out there for you to discover so it's uh, yeah so that one works for us too and um yeah i think i think that's what we look out for of course there's pitfalls along the way our u.s marketing team really wanted to be on pinterest because of course we have to try and reach out to mums but actually that's probably been one of our biggest challenges and pinterest doesn't work for guinness world records mm. so mm. it's just kind of sat there and gone a bit stagnant <laughs> <laughs> The party no one wants to go to. <laughs> um, so, Lucy, um, thank you for your presentation as well. Fascinating to see everything that you're up to at the Roald Dahl Company. Um, when you look after a catalogue of so much amazing IP and so many characters, um, you know, you immediately go, oh, wow, so much content you must be able to post online. But uh, do you focus and how do you decide what to focus on? And, and is it important to focus in terms of the IPs that you, you promote across social media and on your channels? Um, yeah, absolutely, because there is an awful lot of IP in the um, dark back catalogue. Um, so what we tend to do is each year we pick what's called our hero title. Uh, so we then will tailor all of our content um, on a digital level around that, but our marketing activations, our brand partnerships new publishing, new product, and we try and then create a halo effect from the buzz that's going on around said title. That doesn't mean if there's an amazing opportunity for another part of the IP world that we wouldn't touch it. Obviously, there's days that lean in better to certain characters than others, but as a whole, we find it's a really helpful way for us as an organization to narrow and produce something really strong, but also it then makes, whilst consumers might not be necessarily aware that oh, it's 2019, it's the year of Matilda, it, it does make kind of the comms a lot clearer. And in terms of choosing each of those, um, we work on often about an 18-month-out schedule. And so we chose 
2019 as the year of Matilda in 2017. And it's really interesting because we chose that during a time of real kind of strong young women. And it was um, rebel girls were at the forefront. But actually, as we've come into 2019, it's even more relevant because we're now in, and we've spoken about so much with the conference, um, in an era where young people are wanting to take a stand and speak truth to power and be anarchists and activists. And that couldn't be more true of uh, the story of Matilda and her taking on the Trunchbull. Um, so we try and look for the cultural zeitgeist and then lead um, lead that with a way of narrowing our hero title focus. Amazing. Thank you very much. So um, do we thank the panel again, and then we'll do some questions. But that was amazing. Thank you so much. So does anyone have a question that they would like to ask? Um, nice if it's a broad question that um, different panellists can take, but if you have a specific question as well, then that's fine too. End of the comp. There we go. Thank you. Can we get a... Hello. Hi. It's uh, Rob here from Fish in a Bottle. Um, I just want to quickly just add, to, uh, if I may, to the hero story, because we did we made the Heroes Interactive um, piece. It was about 10 years ago. Uh, we weren't allowed to... I'll tell you a very quick story. We weren't allowed to write any um, characters, because NBC Universal said we, we weren't allowed to do it, so we couldn't write any narrative, but they said we could create our own character. That character was GOYP locked, so only fans in the UK could see it. Fans in the UK copied and pasted all the content to all the fans in the US. The US loved it, and the character got written into the third oh, wow. series. Nice. But they killed the character off in five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> and when I joined Fish in a Bottle, that was like one of the first projects they did, and it was the most exciting thing ever. And I feel like we're, we're no longer as, as ambitious as we were 10, 15 years ago. How do people feel about that? I think you're probably right. I think that um, it's always a challenge to come up with new ideas, right? These kind of quirky things like that where you were invited to create the opportunity and that character's written in. Um, I wouldn't like to say it's more lazy thinking, but there's so much cool stuff that's been done for um, audiences to experience more. And it's getting more and more difficult to think of what that quirky thing might be, um, which is why I talk about some of those fundamental things I said in terms of the theme and the social ladders and the tribes and the twists and all of that, because to come up with a quirk for the sake of a quirk, everyone's just so more savvy now. We're so much more tuned into what's out there. So uh, that's kind of why I like bang on about that stuff I was talking about because I think with those fundamental things in place it's easier to make some of those fun decisions as you've moved on but that's a really cool story that you did that thank you for sharing that was that was that something that was planned or was that just an evolution of you know I'm just thinking you said are we being as ambitious was that just a great yeah, outcome rather than planned yeah in fairness it wasn't planned I mean yeah. we, what we you know we always love to be able to write or develop a story further online so, yeah, we had no idea that it would end up like that, that the, US fa the, the UK fans would share it with the US fans and then it would become yeah. this big thing. I think sometimes it's the community that surprise yeah, you in the way enough. they respond. Yeah. You know, and sometimes you can plan something and you go, well, we think they're going to love this. And they quite love it, but it's actually... So, so when we launched our Warriors Hub, we, we assigned people with a, a standard, like, warrior cat's name because there's a whole system to the naming. And we, we found that was actually the most talked about thing. We were like, what well, the usernames that they're generated when they register on the site are the most talked about, and they created their own avatars, and they were going, we've been assigned a government name by the Warriors. We were absolutely blown away. We thought they'd love the exclusive content from the, the authors, which they do, but they kind of surprised us. And I think it's about taking that, oh, they did that, and then trying to do something more with it. You can't always plan for those ambitious moments, maybe. Can I just 
add a, a thought. So um, I was, I'm a children's author, first and foremost, and a lot of children's authors that I speak to, you go into school with your book and you read it to kids. And the anecdote that so many of us say is, oh, I'm changing that bit because you don't get the response immediately from the kid that you want. <laughs> and then um, you're, you, you move, you're sort of just moving that idea really into, into big TV where you're developing script, you're developing concepts to, to build a brand, but you're, you haven't got that human reaction as you're doing so. So really social media communities that you can create yourself are just recreating that experience that you would have you know, stand-up comedians, another fantastic example. They go and do a gig. If it falls flat, that joke's gone. Yeah. You know, very, place. very quickly. <laughs> you just start playing smaller venues. Yeah. yeah. You, you, kind of, you have to lead and follow at the same time. It's really, you have yeah. to react and be sensitive and listen. But at the same time, if you're sort of too reactive, mm. then, then you're not doing your job as well. And I, I started in professional wrestling, which is um, a very <laughs> elemental <laughs> form of storytelling. Yes. It's a very simple story. Too okay, oh, you weren't the wrestler. Yeah. Just no. checking. Um, I was just... And and, um, but the point is, is that you, you get that live reaction. And somebody said, and I think this is true of all storytelling, but it was said to me about a wrestling match. said, uh, if the audience uh, cheer when he wanted them to cheer and they booed when he wanted them to boo, then the match worked. And, yes. it's, and that's, I think, how stories work. Yes. Well. Yeah, you've got to react, haven't you? And you've got to take all these things, things on board. And we find the same thing is a lot of the reaction that we get from audiences informs where our team go and shoot next. So we suddenly see something doing really well in Japan. And so part of our next Japan tour will be filming that record holder and getting, going into depth with them and all that kind of thing. Brilliant. Um, more questions? There's one over there. <laughs> Far away as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering from cultivating a community point of view, how do you deal with an uh, element of your community if it gets co-opted by a group that you don't really want involved in your community? Who wants just like Nazi furries. Like trolls and stuff, you mean? Trolls or there's yeah. you know, an element of gatekeeping going, well, we know this stuff, so what are you doing trying to get into it? There was a study done quite a few years ago. I was doing a master's degree in 2006 on creative writing and new media. And part of our task as students was to create a, a wiki for penguin publishers. They called it A Million Penguins. The idea was usually one person writes a book and a million people read it. This was like everybody writing a book that turned out into one product. And uh, it was all an open wiki. Within two days, we had to lock it down for four hours a day because there was one person coming in writing really explicit porn, which had to go. There's another person called themselves Banana Man. And just randomly, they'd be like, banana, 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 banana. We had to go through and read that stuff. Really quickly, three types of personalities evolved. One was which we called the gardeners. The gardeners did not want to help write in the story, but they helped tidy it up and edit it and keep it nice. The others were the disruptors, and we can tell who those ones were. And we ended up having a whole chapter for those people, like a sandbox for them to just kind of do crap in and like mess everything up. And the others were the writers that were actually trying to evolve the story. And my personal experience is, you may find it different, is that once you have a community built, there's a certain degree of like policing that within the super fans who know it and love it. And they're really they good at, half. yeah, they kind of kick yeah. them out for you or humiliate yeah. them so that they just get out of the way. But um, you have to build it to that balance that you get those fans in there that do it for you. You also have to know when to not rise to it. You know, sometimes somebody will say something and like you say, the, yeah, you, you actually don't respond to them because then you're amplifying their message. You will actually let the other community members to go in, particularly if it's not on your official channel and you just notice it going on. So it's a fine line, isn't it, about judging when to just actually leave it. Otherwise, you're making it an even bigger thing. And sometimes at an early stage, you need to recruit those puppet masters, like 
friends of yours or whatever it might be to get in there and be those people. So it's not like an official, like, no, 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 you can't do yeah. that. But it's almost like they're embarrassed by the community around them. And it um, usually works. We didn't have that problem with us because of the moderation. But just to say very quickly, what we did have was, I guess, a kind of positive reinforcement. So by seeing which um, comments we took into the timeline that therefore became part of the show, you know, became canon, as it were, that taught other kids, like, oh, if we react to the relationship stuff, they like that. Do you know what I mean? And so we, um, so we would sort of teach the bear what we wanted through positive reinforcement. Thank you so much for that question, and thank you everyone for attending our session. Um, I have an announcement uh, to, to wrap us up, but um, just one more time, thank you for, to the panel.